Well, in our last talk, we had Noah there in the ark, and God remembered him. And I suggested that that could be referring to the angels, and that to be remembered uh, before God can simply mean to be made mention of. And so I suggested that in the court of heaven, the angels, the Elohim, the, the God there, uh, made mention of Noah, and so God sent a wind, that is a, a, another angel, I suggested, because he makes his angels, Psalm 104 verse 4, winds or spirits, and the waters assuaged. Now, we are also before God, and what an amazing thought, that we can be thought about and discussed by God before the angels of heaven. What should we do? To get Duncan to do this or to do that, and one angel maybe suggests this, and another one suggests that, and eventually God says, "Okay, you that, that idea, that's good. You go, and I empower you to go and do that in His life." Now, isn't this amazing that God is so active in our lives, thinking about us, that that we are not alone, that man is not alone, that I am not alone, and you are not alone, but that God is with us. Of course, ultimately in in His Son, but all the same. We little tiny people on this planet are being discussed by God. It's not that everything is wound up on clockwork, that it's tick-tocking away and God's going to sort of uh, open the books of the last days. Not at all. And sometimes you must have thought, why is the cosmos so big? I think everybody at some point in their life has looked out of their balcony or whatever, looked up at the sky and thought, why is it so big? Why doesn't God live like one kilometer up in the sky? And on a flat earth, uh, and why? And why this huge number of, of animal, animals and, and plant life? Why the huge variety? These are questions that come. And I wonder if the huge scale of it is simply to impress upon us the, the colossal focus that there is of God upon us. That through all these other forms of plant life, animal life, that he is not in that sense going to save, he focuses upon us. And that, I think, helps us to understand, or get a handle anyway, on understanding why not everyone is going to be saved, why so many billions have lived and died not knowing God, um, and die as the beast that perish. Why is it that he's only dealing with a minority? Well, it's, in a sense, the same question as why is out of all the, the huge number of uninhabited planets in the cosmos, like, what's the point of them there? Uh, why? What's the point of this scale? Um, I don't say this is the ultimate answer, but I think it, it gives me at least a handle on the whole thing, but it is to show us the scale of God's love and interest in me. So then, Noah, who we've said in the first talk was possibly the, the sidekick of his family, his father just wanted him to do all the running around, hard work on the land, uh, and therefore he didn't get around to having his own children until he was about 500 years old, when all the other people of his generation were having kids before they were 100 years old. <coughs> um, Noah, who was perhaps considered as not very blessed, not very lucky, not very smart, because he only had three children, when most people were producing maybe up to 200 children in the course of their lifetime. And uh, then he has three sons who don't have any children, it seems. Uh, and their wives also. 
These people, the small and the broken and the despised, were the ones whom God chose to, to save and to use to at least potentially save the planet. 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And it's been calculated that Noah, despite the fact he was 600 years old, he actually lived to see his children and their, their descendants until the 10th generation. Now that's so, that's pretty amazing. So then, <clears throat> this is of course a picture of, of the kingdom in one sense, coming out of the ark uh, when the earth has been judged and it's all desolate and finished. And maybe in a simple level we can take the lesson that what has not worked out in this life, maybe family life, but some family life does not work out for whatever reason. Like it didn't work out particularly well or particularly uh, fruitful sort of way uh, for Noah, nor for his three sons, nor for his three daughters-in-law. The things in life, let's say family life, it can be an example that, that haven't quite worked out will work out ultimately when we come out of the ark. Now, there's similarities here, of course, with the whole situation with Adam and Eden. Replenish the earth, verse 1. This is Genesis 1.28. Verse 2, have dominion over the animals. This is again Genesis 1.28. He's commanded what he should eat and what he should not eat. It's again, Genesis 1.29. And uh, Genesis 2.16 and 17. So the whole thing is set up, really, I think, for a picture of God's kingdom. <clears throat> but Noah messes up. There's this huge juxtaposition, I think that is the right word, between the whole story that we've had so far with this righteous, just man who, who has this huge faith for 120 years, builds the ark, survives the journey, comes out of the ark, builds an altar on his own initiative, and sweet savor, a savor of Noah, of rest, uh, unto God, and God is so thrilled with Noah, his heart is touched and he makes a big concession to humanity and humanity's weakness. And now Noah's going out to, in the spirit of Adam into this brave new world. And I wonder if the kingdom of God could have come then, in the same way as I wondered whether people like Solomon were in fact potential messiahs. They could have been, whether the kingdom of God could have come at the restoration from Babylon. So many of the kingdom prophecies that talk about, as we now understand them, the future kingdom, uh, I think were intended to have fulfillment then. And of course, if Israel had accepted their Messiah when the Lord Jesus first came, as they were surely intended to, then the kingdom could have come then. Uh, and the way that some of the Isaiah passages are quoted by John the Baptist would imply that, that he was Elijah preparing the way for not only for Messiah, but for God's kingdom. Now, I know you can say, yeah, well, it was prophesied that, that Jesus would die and Jesus would have to come, etc. And I don't offer any very trite explanation for that, but I, I would simply say that there was a huge potential set up which was then messed up. And that is true in our lives. It's been true in the life of Israel particularly. You know, in the Psalms, it's written that God would have fed them with honey out of the rock but Israel would not. They, they just had water. Uh, and they turned back and limited the Holy One of Israel. We can limit God, 
And that's a scary thought that we can limit God. And so this whole thing that happens where it's all set up and then he goes and gets drunk and then there's cursing from, from him against his, uh, his grandson Canaan and, and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, it, it's like the whole miserable old story of Adam's failure repeats again. It's a sad ending in a way. <clears throat> but that sadly is human life. You know, the, the early church, an amazing, wonderful community develops, but Acts 5, then you've got Ananias and Sapphira, and from that on, it's the same old story. The, uh, everything seems to be born to roll downhill. And I think one of the, the greatest things for me of the kingdom is that we will not sin. The eternity of the life is, is, of course, wonderful. And in our humanity, we quite rightly think of it, that we shall not die, that we shall live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But the quality of the life, that we shall not sin. I mean, this is amazing, that no more born to roll downhill. No more flashes of devotion, as you've got all through the history of Israel, as you've had all through the history of our community, all through our own personal histories. Flashes of brilliance, flashes of devotion, but, but somehow very little staying power, this will be no more. So then God uh, says that um, <clears throat> there are to be certain things that they can eat and not eat. Verse 4, flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, should you not eat. And surely your blood, the blood of your lives, will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of every man, even at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. <clears throat> now what is the saying? God is saying that he requires human life. And if somebody was killed, then the person who had killed them, their life would be required because the life of the person whom they had killed would be required. So the life that they killed, verse uh, 5, would be required of them. The blood of your lives will I require. The idea of God requiring, you've got it in Psalm 9, verse 10, where we're told that God will make inquisition, and it's the uh, same word, require. He will make inquisition or requirement for blood. He, he will seek out an account from people. You got the same idea, I think, in the parable of the, the rich man who, who builds his greater barns, and then at the very end he dies, and the Lord says, "You fool! This night your soul, your life, is required of you." Luke 12 verse 20. So then, our life is required of us. It's this principle is developed here in Genesis, but uh, it's not simply that if you take someone else's life. That life is required of you. All life is required. That is the principle. It's a bigger principle than simply saying, if you kill somebody, then uh, you, you've got to, uh, that is required of you. It's a bigger principle than that, because the principle is, life is required. Life is a gift. And that is something to remember when we have moments of weakness and depression, where we curse the day of our birth, um, as Job did, and as so many have done, and we've all done at times. But life is a huge gift. What is the point of living? Like this. We have said that, all of us, I believe, in our low moments. But life is a huge gift, and it will be required. 
Now that rich man who built his bigger barns, that's all he had to show for it. Petty materialistic acquisition. That's all he had, but his life was required, and he didn't have anything to show for it. And so, God forbid that in the last day, when we are to give an account of our life, what did you do with your life? Well, I, uh, I got a nice house. <laughs> no. Your life. What did you do with your life? Well, I this, I, I that, I, I saved my money, I, I bought this, I developed that. No. Your life, sir. What, what do you do with your life? And we live in a world that is wasting its life or its lives in a terrible way. Sitting in front of stupid little Facebook programs on the internet, wasting time fiddling around with emptiness and vanity. Our lives are to be given back to God. Now, that is the principle that God will require our lives. And in the specific context here, in Genesis 9, God is saying that, therefore, you should not take the life of another person. Because that life belongs to God. This is an absolute basic, but it's true. My life is not mine. We don't have a life, in that sense, totally independent from God. It is God's, and he shall take it back and require it at the last day. We are made in the image of God, verse 6. If you take someone else's life, you will lose your life. Why? Because in the image of God made he man. We've got the same idea in James 3 verse 9, where we're told that because human beings are made in the image of God, we should not curse people. We should perceive the value and the meaning of the human person. Now, what does this mean in practice? Because human beings are made in the image of God, yes, it means you hold the door open for somebody. It means that you walk in this world sensitively. When you see a human being, well, that's someone in the image of God. Wow, there's another one. There's ten of them over there. Wow, there's thousands of them in that football stadium. Wow. So then, if we deface what has the image of God, if we damage what has the image of God, that is another human being, God is very sensitive to that, because in that sense, he is manifested in them. So we are surrounded by people. All these little people around us are all in the image of God. And they're there for us to relate to God through them. So then, is it just, is it just me? Yeah, well, you shouldn't kill them then. No, it means more than that. James says that you shouldn't curse them. Uh, and it's interesting that putting, I'm sure James 3.9 is alluding back here, the whole idea that because, Genesis says, because man is made of the image of God, therefore don't kill him. James 3 verse 9 says, because man is made in the image of God, don't curse him. It's as if to curse somebody is to kill them. It, it is, as I say, to deface the image of God. And I would say that any form of dehumanizing another person surely does the same. Now, in this world in which we live, we do, of course, encounter situations where maybe, let's say, in church life, you have to discipline somebody. There comes a point where we, where we may have to say, look, uh, this is wrong. This belief system or that way of behavior is wrong. And that is 
quite right that we should be able to tell right from wrong. We should judge righteous judgment, uh, as the Lord says. But to dehumanize another person is terribly wrong. This is, in God's book, murder, because those people are made in the image of God. No matter how much evil they have done to you, no matter how they have cursed you, no matter what they have done, they are in the image of God. Verse 9. I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. He says it twice. Look at the wonder of this, Noah. I, even I, yes, me, God, I'm making a covenant with you. And he uh, says that he's not going to destroy the earth anymore. And incidentally, note the covenant is actually made with the animals as well as the people. Um, and he says and there will be a, a sign of the covenant. And that's the rainbow. Now, in a sense, this is a classic covenant. But there's something missing. There's the, uh, the conditions on God's side. There are the two parties. God and, and, and human beings and animals on the other side. And that is the, the token of the covenant, the rainbow. But something is missing. And what's missing is the set of requirements and the contract, if you like, from man to God. This is a one-sided covenant. You, you've got the same a bit later on when uh, Abraham uh, passes, sorry, where God passes between the pieces in making the covenant with Abraham and confirming it to him uh, that, that night. But there is not actually a, a demand from Abraham, and it's the same here. Now, this is grace. It's a covenant of grace. Now, apparently, in other Semitic literature, this is a classic setup for, for the covenant. That there's two parties that are clearly defined. There's the conditions for one party. There's the sign of the, the token of the covenant. But something's missing. That is the conditions on the other one. Now, what am I saying? That God's going to just save people anyway? No. But this is the the wonder of grace that God says on one hand I will save you for nothing just believe it and I'll save you now if that is the case if I really believe that that I Duncan will live forever and have all my sin and dysfunction forgiven and washed away and I will live forever and ever in a wonderful life in God's kingdom just well, just because God decided by pure grace to pick me out and say, hey you, hey you, walking down the street of South London as a teenager, but hey you, Duncan, I'm giving you this, you want it? And I said, yeah. And so I was baptized, etc. And so did, so did you. Now, can we just walk away from that passively, thinking, well, that was sweet, that's pretty sweet. No. Because it's not that there's a catch to it. It's not as if God says, uh-huh, well, here are the conditions. No. It's simply that if I truly believe that, if that is real for me, if I believe that, you know, all you've got to do is say yes, but you've got to say yes. Uh, if I have said yes to that, and I'm serious about it, and I believe that, I cannot be passive to that. I cannot any longer walk down the street thinking, yeah, well, I'll do exactly what I want, and yeah, well, no thought for God, or for this Jesus who died for me. I'm just going to get on and 
go on my agenda and do precisely what I want, and that's pretty sweet. I'm going to live forever at the end of it. Because if I were to think like that, I would not really have believed. The wonder of believing that we will live forever by grace, that all my sin and dysfunction is actually not a barrier to God's salvation, that is so wonderful that what's your response? Well, I will try not to sin. I will try to share this grace with others. I will live by grace. So it was absolutely wonderful. God makes this covenant of grace. And then we, we come to this sad, terribly sad moment. When this wonderful covenant of grace has been made, and then verse uh, 20, 21, Noah gets, gets stone drunk, really drunk, and he's naked. Certain implications are about that. It's as if, yeah, he saw all this, but it was too much for him. And in a, in a human sense, I can sort of understand him, that when you are eyeballed, as it were, by God's grace, when you, you face up to the wonder of it all, uh, yeah, I've not done it myself, but I, I can imagine somebody saying, wow, so this is what I've let myself in for. I, I can't cope with this. I, I'm going to go and get drunk. I can't cope with this. Let me out of here. It's too much. I suggested in an earlier talk that um, <clears throat> in the series that I don't think that we can excuse Noah saying, yeah, he didn't really know about wine. Well, the world of his day, the Lord Jesus says, was partying and having a great time right up to the day that Noah entered into the ark. And if they had enough technology to get into iron smelting, which we're told in Genesis 5 they, they did, um, Genesis 4 and 5 talks about music, harp, organ, uh, etc. I mean, I really think they had, that they knew about alcohol. I mean, I really think they did. So he plants a vineyard exactly, I think, for this uh, purpose. He just can't cope with it. And I suggested also that part of it could have been related to his deep grief at what had happened, the, the destruction of the earth. Uh, and the whole thing was, was too much for him. Now, it's not a justify, not a justify what he did at all, but it is seeking to understand. And so, the whole thing messes up. But we're not left without um, some sort of encouragement, because later on in Scripture, Noah is talked about in a very positive way. And clearly, you know, he's in Hebrews 11 on that, and clearly this was a temporary failure. And incidentally, the, the Mesopotamian myths uh, of the flood, which I think Moses is alluding to and correcting, they all feature a hero who's like Noah, who survives the deluge. Um, and the one who survives the flood is turned into a hero and becomes a god. And yet in the biblical record, it's the very opposite. The guy who's the hero who survives the flood and pleases God, he, he goes out and gets stone drunk. It's as if we're being shown that, no, those myths, they all have these wonderful superhuman kind of heroes, but no, all human beings have got feet of clay. Well, we can learn a lesson still, I think, from the reaction of Shem and Japheth to this. Verse 23, they 
covered the nakedness of their father. It's a related word to the word in Genesis 8 verse 13, that there was a covering on the ark, that God covered them, uh, and they, uh, that the ark which symbolized Christ was, uh, was covered, and I said that it's related to the idea of atonement. Now, maybe they saw the connection, that we, have, we were covered in that ark, covered by God, so let's cover the sin of our father, and let's not look upon his nakedness. So then our experience of covering should lead us to cover the sins of others, not turning, uh, as it were, uh, a blind eye and saying, well, I never saw it, or not facing up to other people's failure and weakness. That has to be done. Um, it's not a call to naivety, but covering in the same way as we have been covered. I think there's an allusion to this in Proverbs 12, verse 16, where we read that a prudent man covers, and it's the same word here in Genesis 9.23, they covered their father. Uh, a prudent man covers shame. And actually quite often in the Proverbs we, we read about this. Don't gossip about others' sin, but seek to cover it. We live in a world where so-called entertainment and culture, etc., is all on about gossip. Sometimes I look at the, the news on the internet and basically you could say well over 50% of the, the stuff there is, is gossip. It's actually gossip about other people. Um, it's not particularly newsworthy in my opinion. It's about who had an affair with who, or who was thought to have done this or that or the other. Gossip, and this sort of vicarious involvement in other people's life, is looking at it up close, oh, you got any pictures? Oh, yeah, let's look at that, this site, that site. Discussing other people's supposed failures, etc. This is the very opposite to what we see here. These righteous men taking a garment and covering their father's nakedness in response to how they too had been covered. Now, we're told in verse 23, their faces were backward and so, same word in Exodus 33, verse 23, where God hides his face from Moses, and only his back, his backward parts, are seen. Now, the similarities, or the verbal similarities, between this uh, Genesis 9:23 and that whole incident there with Moses in the rock, and God, as it were, turning his face backward and not letting Moses see him, and God not looking at Moses, um, the verbal similarities are very strong. What's the point of the connection? I think that Moses, in recording that incident, is suggesting that he felt like drunken Noah, and that God showed the same grace to him as Noah's sons show to their drunken father by not looking upon his sin and his nakedness, but going with their faces backward past him. And Isaiah takes the illusion further, Enter into the rock. Hebrew, the cleft of the rock. Same word about Moses going into the cleft of the rock as Yahweh's glory passed by. That we in that sense are Moses. And that God in that sense has, uh, has put his face backward, as it were, so that he doesn't uh, engage in, in that sense, look at, stare at our human sin and nakedness. He knows it, he sees it, but he chooses to pass it by. And the whole idea of 
Yahweh passing by Moses. I mean, this this is also an idea that is uh, used about forgiveness elsewhere, that Yahweh delights in passing by transgression. And of course, the, the whole point is, if this is how God has treated you and me, this is how we should treat others. And I would say that if we are not going to do that, if we are not going to uh, resist gossip, if we're going to take a, a huge interest in, in the nakedness and the, the sin of other people, um, if these are the things that fill our emails, our conversations, our phone calls, I would suggest that we need to think more deeply about the depth of our own failure before God and the grace that he has shown in passing by us. Now finally, Noah comes round from his, uh, his drinking and he three times starts yelling at Canaan. Now, the person who actually did uh, whatever sin was done to him was Shem. And I think you could argue that the, the sin was Shem gossiping to Ham and Japheth about it. And they acted responsibly and didn't respond to that gossip. Um, <coughs> Noah is furious with Canaan. Why, why with Canaan? This is Shem's son. Why doesn't he start yelling at Shem? Uh, I think that this is typical of how in breakdown of relationships, in anger, we tend to take out issues against people who are maybe not directly related. People get very angry, for example, with the, um, the kids of somebody who, who they've fallen out with, or they, they attack things that are not directly relevant. They don't go to the person they have an issue with and talk with them. They take it out, take out their anger on somebody or something that is peripheral, that is tangential, that's at a tangent to that person. And uh, again, we take a lesson that in our disagreements, and we have them, in our dealing with sin, and we are all sinners and we keep rubbing up against each other's sin, we are to deal with each other as persons directly. And if we will not do that, uh, and it's something that is not done as it should be in our community, if we will not do that, we will end up taking it out against issues and people that are on a tangent from where the problem really is. And so he yells out all these curses about Canaan, and as you probably know, there's been all kinds of uh, seriously mistaken racist views taken of all this. People say that you know, Canaan represents black people or, or, or whatever, servants to, to the white people. And that. This is nonsense. I mean, truly, this is nonsense. I would suggest that th this cursing, this yelling of, of Noah, had no power at all. I don't think that any of these verses that we're reading there from uh, 25 down to 27, I don't think that any of that really came true. This was a man, don't forget, who had been stone drunk and was just waking up from his uh, alcohol. He was still under the influence. He was just able to talk, that's all. Um, <clears throat> I don't think this, uh, this came to it. I don't think it came true uh, at all. And why didn't it come true? I think to show us the, the whole tragedy of the whole thing, that uh, he's hitting the wrong man anyway. He's yelling at Canaan and not Shem. He should have gone for Shem, but the father, not blow off at somebody who is a bit on the edge of the whole thing, the guy's son, um, <clears throat> who presumably would have been quite a little boy because they, they didn't have the, Shem didn't have any children, it seems, before 
he went into the ark. Um, so it might have been really just uh, quite a little baby, for we know. Maybe she conceived during the voyage. Maybe it was really a newborn baby. Who knows? But anyway, I think pretty young. So then the story ends, humanly speaking, on this, uh, just on a down, on a downer, as it were. But it's reality, isn't it? And that's how the story ends. But of course, Noah went on living, verse 28, another 350 years. And then we read about all his generations in, in chapter 10, all his uh, children and descendants. So then, <clears throat> one failure, one aspect of failure, I don't think necessarily, necessarily should lead us to stigmatize somebody for the rest of their lives. Because the biblical record doesn't do that to Noah, does it? It's very positive about him. All the way through. Hebrews 11 particularly. Peter particularly. Jesus also, really, by way of illusion. And so, our lives are all a journey, they're all a history that's being lived out, moment by moment, in our lives now. So to sum up, there was Noah, I suggested that his father had him with the idea of, right, well, this one, out of all my maybe hundred or more kids, this one is going to give us a lot an easy ride. He's going to just uh, be the servant. And so he didn't get on really with his own married life. 480 years old, God says, right, there's going to be this flood. You can build an ark to save yourself and other people from it. And he thought, why? Who am I? Uh, who am I to, to be saved? He wasn't purely righteous because God saw him as righteous. We're told and he was righteous in the eyes of God. Genesis says he was given righteousness. Hebrews says because of his faith. And he thought, well, well, I don't deserve to be saved. I'm a sinner. Who knows? Because he'd had that pretty hard sort of sidekick kind of existence. Who knows? He might have been drinking back then when he was... Uh, when he was a younger man, who, who knows? But um, anyway, he believed, and that was a thing, and God counted him as righteous. And he thought, what can my response be? My response then is to try to invite other people into this ark, the animals, think how I can care for them, what sort of food I can get for them. And it took him 120 years. That was what he talked about when he started to find a wife. It's how he brought his kids up. It's how his three sons would have talked to their wives and other women that they met, um, preaching righteousness because he had the Spirit of Christ.